be reading from Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Nehemiah 2, 1. And it came about in the month, Nisan, in the 20th of the, of the year, King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it pleased the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. Lord Jesus, um, we again thank you for your presence with us, to indwell us, and also, God, your spirit to teach us and to lead us into all that is true and good. And I pray again that our hearts would just be open and responsive to you, and that as we hear your voice, Lord, that we would say yes to you and permit you to work in us of all that is your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we start this second chapter of Nehemiah, um, and it says it came about in the month Nisan, this is four months after Nehemiah had begun to pray concerning the situation in Jerusalem. That's a long time, particularly when you consider how emotionally distraught he was over that Jerusalem situation. You recall going back to chapter 1, that when he heard the condition of the city, verse 3, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. His response then in verse 4, it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So those days are actually months. Four months. He is so distraught that he sits down, he mourns, he's fasting, he's praying, and asking God to restore the situation in Jerusalem that the walls would be rebuilt. One of the problems here, and it doesn't come out in this text, but we know it from Ezra, that the reason that the city is not being rebuilt is because of this man, Artaxerxes. He's the one who issued the decree that the building should stop. And so the, the guy that is responsible for this is the same guy 
that Nehemiah has to approach now for permission that the city could once again be rebuilt. And so this is, would contribute to his frustration, to his, to his turmoil of heart, is that the guy that he serves is the problem. So how do you approach this guy and not be mad? Well, the first thing you have to do is just check your own heart. And I think this four months of praying was more for, for Nehemiah than it was for Artaxerxes. Because the last thing you want to do is to approach this man in power with a spirit of arrogance or insolence, or spirit of anger, it wouldn't go well. He needs to humble himself and recognize that God put this man in power, and if his heart's going to be changed, it's not going to be because he's demanding that it happen. And so for four months, he is continuing to serve the king. And so we're told that he served the king every day. At the end of verse 1 of chapter 2, now I had not been sad in his presence. Outside of his presence, he's mourning. He's praying. He's agonizing over this. But in the king's presence, the king never knew there was a problem for four months. I find that amazing. And when he does approach the king, it is with great deference and respect. How do you go four months and let nobody know how much you are in turmoil over a situation? It's amazing. I see a man here who is under the control of the Spirit. Some historians think that there was actually um, a law or at least a very strong expectation that nobody be in the king's presence with a sad face, that you could die for being sad in the, in the, in the face of the king. That might be what's going on here. I don't know for sure that we can say. But what we do know for sure is that for all these months, the king never had any idea of the turmoil that Nehemiah is going through. And I don't know how he could have hidden that in his own strength. Proverbs says, the man who rules his own spirit is greater than the one who controls a city. But who can rule their own spirit? I remember growing up and, you know, and, and at different times being told, change your attitude. That's a tough thing to do change your attitude. One of our kids, I used to say to him, spanking didn't help a whole lot. It did with the others, but one of them, spanking just didn't help a whole lot. So I'd send him to his room, and I'd say, you're not coming out until your heart has been changed. You might be shaving by the time you get out. <laughs> you might be gray-headed by the time you get out, but you're not coming out of that room until your heart has been changed. And he knew I was serious. And sometimes it lasted for months. I'm kidding. <laughs> sometimes it'd be an hour or two he'd be in his room. Other times it was just minutes. But he knew he had to go to Jesus to get his heart right. Because only Jesus can ultimately do that. And I don't think that Nehemiah is, is being deceptive. I don't think he's being hypocritical. I think he's being spiritually mature that he's allowing the Spirit of God to control his heart. In the midst of his hurting, his pain, his grief, turmoil, he's allowing the Spirit to control him. 
He's not being controlled by his emotions. That's an amazing thing. You think of all the different emotions that we have that can control us. Anger, dejection, sadness, grief, fear, anxiety. We make so many excuses for allowing them to rule us. Emotions. The emotions in themselves are not sinful. But if the emotions are ruling us and not the Spirit of God, then we can allow our emotions to sidetrack us from what our duty to others is. And others suffer because we are not under the control of God's Spirit, but we're under the control of our emotions. Daniel had a duty to be before the king and not be sad. And he was sad. So I think the only explanation would be that he had to go before God and say, God, you know my heart, and I am sad. I am grief-stricken over what's going on in Jerusalem. But I can't be sad in front of the king. That is the rule. So God, you've got to take over. And every day he stepped in front of that king, that discerning man. If you met, any man was going to be discerning over who's in his presence, it would be the king when the cupbearer's in his presence because if the cupbearer's sad, it might be because he's plotting the assassination of the king. So his eyes were always on the cupbearer, scrutinizing them, carefully observing them. Never any indication that there was a problem until four months had gone by. We can allow our emotions to sidetrack us from our duty to others. And they are robbed. I think about this especially as parents Today's Father's Day, and so all of us as dads think about all the ways that we could have been a better dad, times when maybe our emotions got the better of us, and, or maybe mom's the same, where our children are having to relate to our emotions rather than to Christ in us. And that is not right. We can leave our kids with just memories, sad memories, of how they were constantly having to deal with our emotions when they should have been in the privileged place of seeing Jesus and responding to him. We can allow our emotions to distract us from what is of central importance. And more important than Jerusalem was Nehemiah's heart before God. And nothing rises to the level of breaking off that covenant relationship with the Lord where he is in control and not us. Nothing should have the power to break that union with Christ and that fellowship with him where he is in control of our thoughts and our emotions and we're not being ruled by the circumstances as important as those circumstances are. We can allow the emotions to become truth and live from emotions rather than from Christ. And again, I'm not saying emotions are bad. They're a gift from God, but they were never meant to be the truth. They're never meant to be our reality. They're never meant to control us. I believe that Nehemiah, as evidenced by his not revealing his emotions, is revealing that his heart was under the control of God. Come to Jesus, yield to him, and allow the mind of Christ to rule over us.
So the king said to me, why is your face sad though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. That is a discerning pagan. <laughs> Even though this man is not a believer, God has still given him discernment. We need to understand that God works in and through unbelievers. And they may not know the Lord, but that doesn't mean that God can't use them and isn't working in them. And this man saw that there was not something that was circumstantial or, or trivial, but this was something that went to the heart of Nehemiah. What is going on here? And then Nehemiah said he was very much afraid. Well, one reason that he'd be afraid is because if it is, in fact, the expectation that nobody be sad in front of the king, then he could be fearing for his life. I wonder if there's something more. During these four months of praying, he would have been praying, God, set the stage. Give me the indication when it's time to speak. I will not speak until you have made it clear that it's time to speak. God has made it clear. It's time to speak. So I wonder if this fear is the fear of messing up what God has set the stage for. Haven't we all been there? You've been praying for the right opportunity, and then the opportunity comes, and you go, oh my, here's the opportunity. I could royally mess this up. And we do. So I wonder if his fear is the fear of just not making the most of the opportunity that God has given. His response is beautiful. Verse 3, I said to the king, let the king, the guy who is responsible for this problem, live forever. Total respect, deference, honor. How wise. But it wasn't just being manipulative. I don't think that's Nehemiah. It's being honest. This is a man, Nehemiah, who loves his boss. He cares for his boss. He respects his boss. Don't forget that these guys were scoundrels, every one of these ancient kings. They were ruthless men who would kill people at the drop of a hat for the tiniest offense, they would just kill them. Nehemiah would have seen that played out many, many times. And he is the guy who has stopped the building of Jerusalem. But from sincerity of heart, this discerning king would be able to know if Daniel was sincere or not when he said, long live the king. Right? He would have detected if there's any sarcasm, if there is any falseness in that. We can detect that. And again, he's already proven himself to be a discerning man. And Nehemiah says, may the king live. I commented um, to our students at the closing program that we had at His Hill back in May that one of the things I've appreciated, and I appreciate it more as I get older, is how respectful the students can ask questions, especially when it's something that they feel strongly about. And I really appreciate it, you know, because I'm not always there, and so I, I, I can get too emotional when I'm asking a question about something that I, 
um, disagree with or I feel like the guy's saying something that might be heretical, and boy, the emotion just starts to come up in there. And the students, they've just been wonderful that way. There's such respect to be able to ask good, penetrating questions in a respectful way where I don't feel like I'm being attacked. It's amazing. Even when they sleep in class, they don't snore, showing respect again. <laughs> respectfully sleeping, respectfully asking questions is great. I remember being in a class in seminary with Dwight Pentecost, and he seemed old at that time, um, and he only taught another 20 or 30 years after that. So he, um, And I can remember, you know, he, I, I saw him as just a wise grandfatherly, gentle kind of guy. But one day, a student asked him a question, and you could sense the edge in the question. Where this wasn't a question to find out the answer, this was a question to stump the prof, to make the professor look foolish. Oh, my life. I wanted to put my head under the desk. <laughs> I felt, I mean, he tore that student to pieces this gentle, grandfatherly old man who'd been teaching forever. He saw what was going on. He wasn't anybody's fool. And he would have nothing to do with it. We need to learn how to speak to authority. And Nehemiah knew how to speak to this man in authority. It's one of the first lessons that every child should learn at home. One of the primary obligations that mom and dads have is to, have, is to teach their children to respect authority. And that comes down to how you speak to them, how you talk to them. We were taught that in our home. I half-jokingly half say that if my dad heard us say, huh, when he asked us a question, then he would say, sure, I'll spank you. <laughs> because we were taught to say, yes, sir, no, sir, not huh. That's how we grew up. I can remember parents dropping their kids off at camp when I was a camp counselor, 19 years old, and um, peach fuzz on my face, and, and the dad saying to, the, to their kids as they dropped them off, you will say yes, sir, and no, sir, to this man. And I'm going, who's the man? <laughs> Who are you talking to? <laughs> you will say yes, sir, no, sir, to this man. And then turning to me and say, and if they smart off to you, you have my permission to spank them. Wow. Made me feel kind of big, you know. <laughs> Look at the kid. <laughs> and I never spanked any kids. We didn't have permission to do that from the camp. I feel like the parents, in retrospect, were probably saying that just to, you know, fake the kids out a little bit and keep them in line. But I appreciated what they were trying to instill. Show respect. Even when I'm not around, show respect. I was in a situation in college where there was a professor, chairman of the English department, who was very popular at the time with the students. He was a little younger than most of the professors and um, very friendly on, in class and out of class, often had students into his home, jogged with us, lifted weights with us. We were on a first-name basis with him. And I appreciated that. When he came up for tenure, he wasn't granted tenure. He was quite offended. He shared his anger and frustration with some of us students, which was against protocol. He 
students, professors are never to share their grievances with students. And so I was an RA that year, my senior year, and a bunch of the guys, seniors, came to me and said, um, you're in a position you can do something about this. You need to go to the president of the university and tell him how wrong this is. This is the last person on this campus who needs to be denied tenure. And they got me all charged up. Yeah, go, man, go. You're the guy. Go, go. And so I, was, I marched down to the president's office. And I was all fired up. This man needs to be set straight, and I'm the guy to do it. And um, I said to his secretary, I want to see the president. And she said, well, he's a busy man. He, it'll be a couple of weeks before you can get in. I said, well, put my name down. I'll come back. Spring, meantime, spring break came up, fortunately. And... Um, I went to see an old retired missionary that lived up in Kerrville, and every time I was home, I'd go see him, and he'd ask me things, you know, how's college going and stuff, and I told him what was going on. And he, um, he just got quiet, and he put his head down on his chest and closed his eyes, and I thought, nap time? Um, I, I was just so dumb. I didn't realize he's praying for me because he's so fired up in his heart, he doesn't want to say the wrong thing. And he just bowed his head, prayed, got his heart under control, asked God for wisdom. And when he raised his head and opened his eyes, he said to me, Charles, always called me Charles, when I was a young man in university, no one, no student would have made an appointment to speak to the president of the university about anything. And he said it so gently but I knew he was trying to say something to me important. And I felt like I'd been run through with a spear. Who do you think you are? So I went back to school, and my appointment with the president came up, and I kept it, and I kept my big mouth shut. We just had a nice 15-minute visit. That was all I was allotted. I said nothing about the tenure from that professor because I knew it wasn't my business. And had I spoken, not only would I be speaking into an area that was not where I was meant to be, but I wouldn't have been able to say it in a way that was respectful. So glad. Many years later, that professor who had left the school was in San Antonio, and I'd heard about it randomly. One of my brothers and I went out and took him out for lunch, and I said, you remember when you weren't given tenure? And he says, do I? Boy, he was on it like a chicken on a June bug. And I thought, this is good. Now we're going to get all, you know, the venom and anger. Nope. He said, just like that, best thing that ever happened to me. That is a godly man. And God was using him in my life, even when I didn't know it, to redirect me and put me where I am today. I would not be doing what I am today if it hadn't been for that godly man who I know was seeking God for his will for my life. And I'm going, oh, Lord, thank you that I didn't speak up because I was fired up. Just because you're fired up doesn't mean God's telling you to talk. If you're so fired up that you're not under control, I can tell you, God is telling you to be silent. Because he will never have you speak when you are out of control. Through the Spirit is self-control. 
Let the king live forever. He was respectful. We need to learn to speak and to relate to authority with respect and honor and deference. Proverbs says, the rich man answers roughly. The poor man utters supplication. Isn't that so true? You think you're in a position of power, position of right, it's easy to answer roughly. Poor man doesn't see himself as having any position, and he utters supplications. Reminds me of the very first beatitude where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I tend to think poverty of spirit, one way that it is revealed, is in showing respect for others. When you are poor in spirit, you are not going to be quick to disrespect other people, particularly those who are in authority. I know some of you are bosses, and you've probably listened to what I'm saying and go, I wish all these high school kids could listen to me. Because I hear from bosses, and I hear how disrespectful they are, how irresponsible they can be, and it's astounding. Learn to speak to authority with deference, respect, and humility. So he spoke. Verse 4. Well, I need to finish verse 3. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Now, he was careful not to say, Jerusalem. A lot of the commentaries say it's because he didn't want to put salt in a wound. He knew that the king had already shut down the building of Jerusalem. So he's avoiding that. So he's talking about it by avoiding it head on. I don't know. I, I don't see Nehemiah being that manipulative or shrewd. I think he's speaking from his heart under the control of the Spirit of God. And it, he's identifying with Jerusalem. He's not trying to avoid a hard subject. He just wants the king to know, I'm sad because I identify with Jerusalem even more than you and this place. I'm here, 100% here, and I'm happy to be here, but my heart's in Jerusalem. And that's why I'm sad. And the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. What would you request? And I prayed. He didn't say, can you give me five minutes? <laughs> he steps up in the broom closet and gets down on his knees. This is one of those few times in scripture where we see people praying silently in their hearts and right on the spot. We know that when Abraham's servant went to find a wife for Isaac, and he's at the well, and these women are coming out, and he says, and in his heart, he's praying. And he says, Lord, let the woman who comes and waters the camels also offer um, to, um, to get, who gives water to us, also offer to water the camels. And he's praying in his heart. First time I think we see that in the Bible, where somebody's praying in their heart. And then we have Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, where she's at the tabernacle, and she's praying in her heart for a child. Eli thinks that she's drunk and rebukes her because he sees her lips moving but no sound coming out. And now the third time you see a man praying in his heart. 
in the midst of the circumstance. There's not time to go to his closet and close the door, as Jesus said. And so this, again, reveals a man in relationship with God. He's praying all the time. He's not just praying when you're supposed to pray. He's praying constantly. And in the midst of this circumstance, he can go, Lord Jesus, help me. Now, he wouldn't have said Jesus, I know. Lord God, help me. You've opened the door. You've paved the way. Now, don't let me mess this up. So it was a silent prayer. God knows the heart. He knows what we're thinking. He, we can pray without opening our mouth, and God hears us. Praise God for that. Now, a little bit of a rabbit trail, perhaps. Can Satan know what you're praying? When you don't open your mouth, and you're praying in your heart, can Satan read your thoughts? Scripture seems to be silent on this. Most evangelicals would say, no, he cannot, because he is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. And so he can't know what you are praying when you are not using your tongue. But at the same time, we acknowledge that Satan tempts, and he can introduce tempting thoughts to us. So on the one hand, evangelicals say Satan can't read your thoughts. But on the other hand, Satan can introduce thoughts to you. I don't know how that works out. So I'm not going to die over this point. But to me, it seems a bit contradictory. If he can introduce a thought, then can't he know the thought that he's introduced? It seems like if he can introduce a thought, maybe he can read our thoughts. I don't know. This is what I do know. One, to me, in my walk with the Lord, when I am under attack by the enemy, I find that heart prayer somehow just doesn't cut it. That it helps me when I know I am under attack by the enemy to pray out loud. Not to Satan, but I pray out loud. And it somehow it just seems to help rebuke the enemy to help resist the enemy would be a better way to put it. Years ago, I, I memorized, um, I was memorizing fairly big chunks of scripture. And, and I, um, not to, be, to boast or anything, I just, it was something that I enjoyed doing, it felt like God had put on my heart. And I also found that when I found thoughts, that just obsessive thoughts that I couldn't get rid of, oftentimes of resentment or bitterness or whatever, that's often my downfall, that reciting the scripture that I was memorizing out loud, not in my heart, but out loud, was a very effective way to resist the devil. The scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So I felt like I'm, I was fighting back and not just being passive and not just focusing on the attack. You can focus on the attack and not go anywhere. But when I spoke out loud the truth of my position in Christ, the truth of who I am in the Lord and Christ is in me, the truth of his word by reciting out loud what I was memorizing, I felt like the devil would flee. And why wouldn't he? I mean, if every time you attack somebody, he's going to start quoting scripture. That's what Jesus did, right? When he was being attacked, when he was being tempted by the devil, he quoted scripture, and the devil left him alone. So 
So I feel like that whether Satan reads my thoughts or not, I don't know. But I see from the example of Jesus and from my own experience that it is very effective in resisting the enemy to speak out loud the truth. And he flees. So this is silent prayer, it is immediate prayer, and it is simultaneous with the events that are going on. And God knows it. And isn't it great being a Christian this way? I mean, it's not too many things you can do two things at one time. But you can always pray while you're doing anything else. And I'm thankful for that. So his request, verse 5, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, and there, J. Vernon McGee, he's kind of funny on this, he says, he thinks that when the king was carrying on his official business and the queen was sitting there and the queen didn't have anything to do and Nehemiah didn't have anything to do, that the queen and Nehemiah would get to talking. What did you do last weekend? Oh, I took a boat ride. What did you do? You know, and, and so they kind of built up a relationship. And now when Nehemiah is saying, if it pleases the king, send me to Jerusalem, J. Vernon McGee is saying that queen was sitting there kind of elbowing him in the ribs. Let him go. He's a good guy. He's our friend. He's been a good cupbearer. And so the king said, okay. It pleases the king, and, he, and I gave him a definite time. So he'd been th thinking and planning. The commentaries make a big thing about this. He wasn't just praying for four months. He was also planning for four months. How long is this going to take if the king does say yes? How long will it take? How much cost will it be? What do I need for this? And he's got it all planned out. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me because he's going to need... Um, authority to go through these areas and not be harassed. Let letters be given to me to pass through, and also letter be given to the keeper of the king's force, because I'm going to need wood. Wood for rebuilding the, the, the fortress outside the temple, rebuilding the gates, and also for building me a house. And the king was favorable, and it says, and the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Favor is the gift of God. So I'm going back over this again. I can't stress enough how important it is to learn to wait on God and not just be moved by our emotions. Particularly when we're passionate people or we're stirred emotionally. And for me, I'm a high justice guy. And so when I see injustice, my first knee-jerk reaction is to jump into the fray without praying. Because I feel so righteous. It's a righteous anger, right? We must learn to wait on God, especially when we feel strongly about whatever's going on. There are times when God would have us to act immediately. I understand that. But he's never going to have us act out of control. Learn to wait on God. Learn to let God set the table to set the circumstances up to where we can walk into it and we can say, as Nehemiah said, God did it. God gave me favor. This wasn't because I was so persuasive or so passionate or anything else. This is because God did it. God gave favor. And if you haven't learned to wait on God and let him work in us as well as work in the people that we're talking to, then we're not going to be able to see the favor. And so he set out, 
that he goes to Jerusalem, finally makes it there, and people weren't happy to see him. Many were, some weren't. Verse 9, I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. That had to be quite a sight. So when Nehemiah comes into Jerusalem, he's got a military procession with him. So that would have set, spoke volumes to the people of Jerusalem, the enemies, everybody. This man doesn't come on his own authority. He would not have this military procession unless he had the king's backing. And when Sanballat, the, Hor the um, Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. How can you be mad about somebody just wanting to do good for somebody? Because they're enemies of God. And the enemy of God, Satan, wants nothing good for God's people. So there will always be people out there who, who hate the good. And he comes only to seek good. And he's hated and opposed for it. There will always be Satan's opposition to God's work. It shouldn't surprise us. And we shouldn't be critical of others when we see them being opposed. It doesn't mean that God is opposed to what they're doing. When God's working, there will be opposition. And when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, the Scripture says he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That doesn't say he will have no enemies. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he will have no enemies. That's not what it says. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he will make his, even his enemies to be at peace with him, meaning that God can keep the enemies at bay. But the enemies don't necessarily go away. And Nehemiah had enemies the whole time he was in Jerusalem. So what does he do? Quickly, it says, he came to Jerusalem and he was there for three days. And he arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and onto the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates by which were, in which were consumed by fire. And he passed through the whole city that night. So you have here the first undercover boss. He's undercover, he's doing it at night, and he's, all he's doing, he spent three days not doing anything. So he's not rushing into this. He's meeting people figuring out who's in charge, who has the influence, not told anybody yet why he's there, and then secretly at night with a few close advisors with him, he surveys the city because he wants to see for himself what the condition is. Information is so important. I heard Ian Thomas say one time, and he learned this out of his military experience, things are never as bad as they seem. And things are never as good as they seem. The truth is somewhere in the middle. So he's wanting to find out for himself what the truth is. And guess what? They are in a bad place. And he says that when he comes back. So he says in verse, um, verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in. Yes, it's a bad situation, but it's not a hopeless situation. Things are never as bad as they seem nor are they ever as good as they seem. The truth is somewhere in the middle. He identifies himself with them. We can rebuild. You see the bad situation we are in. 
that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burn with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. As we're going to see, he actually gets physically involved with the rebuilding of the wall. He wasn't just telling them what to do. He's very much involved. He's a good leader. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. God's working here. But when Sanballat, the Hornonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Gesem, Gesem, the Arab, heard about it, and these are enemies to the north, to the east, and to the south, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing they are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Good stuff. They mocked us and opposed us. Quoting J. Vernon McGee again, he says, this is a first-level attack by Satan. And it's one of the favors, isn't it? Proverbs says that the fool, when he has a controversy with a wise man, he either rages or he laughs. Mocking is one of the first tactics of the fool and of Satan. So a person, when he's first starting out in the Christian life, will find himself mocked more openly than when he's been walking with Christ for 30, 40, 50 years. I don't hear mocking much anymore. But when you're 19, 20 years old, and you've got your whole life set before you, and you start making decisions for Christ, it's much more likely you're going to be mocked then than when you're 60. I remember coming home from seminary, and my dad was having breakfast here in, in town, and, and I went over to see him, and he was another man there, professing Christian. My dad introduced him as his son that was in seminary, and the guy's first words out of his mouth, oh, studying fairy tales, are you? Mocking me. Jesus said in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven. It's an old tactic. It hasn't gone away. And I do think it maybe is more, um, Satan uses it more against us early in our Christian walk than he does now. But it's always there. Mockery and derision. It hurts. It hurts because we love and mean no ill will. We have only good in mind, and yet we can be mocked and discredited and despised. It hurts because it's getting evil for good, and it's undeserved. It's painful to have love requited with hate. But there's also a measure that it hurts in correspondence to the measure of pride in us. The servant, the slave, gets mocked. He's got feelings. He's got a heart. 
and it hurts. But it doesn't hurt as much if you were the king getting mocked. Because a servant kind of knows this comes with the territory of being a slave. I knew a guy, I knew a guy whose job was um, emptying skiddo cans. And he drove around to construction sites with what they called the honey wagon. And he, you know, had a big hose, vacuum hose, and he pulled up those porta potties and stuck the hose in there and, and sucked everything out. Can you imagine all the jokes that those construction guys threw at the guy who had to empty the skiddo cans? And there were some pretty creative jokes. I heard a lot of them. And the guy just goes, yeah, 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 I haven't heard that one. Yeah, yeah, I heard that one before. Comes with the territory. He's being mocked. But he knows it comes with the territory because of the job that he has. There's some lesson in there for us. We're Christians. Jesus got mocked. It comes with the territory. And if you see yourself as a lowly servant, we are under Jesus, and we see how Jesus responded to the mocking. And if he got mocked, what makes us think that we won't? We can let it go. We can turn the other cheek. Final application. Look, I went a little bit over. I didn't hear the thing. I'm sorry. Real quick. Most commentaries, commentaries want to give you a list of leadership lessons to learn from this chapter. This is from one guy. I like the guy. I, I've met him. Um, 21 leadership lessons from chapter 2. They're all great. He established a reasonable and attainable goal. He had a sense of mission. He was willing to get involved. All these are great things. I really don't think Nehemiah was operating from this. He was a man listening to Jesus. Surrendered to his God, available to his God, and God just gave him what we would call common sense. He just stepped into the situation by faith. I spoke to a friend this week who was a baker before he became the director of one of the torchbearer schools. He's no longer a torchbearer center director. God used him powerfully. In fact, God used him so much that he didn't even realize it, but this center was already, it, it had been in bad shape, and, and the previous director had really Put it, was moving it back where it should be, but it needed another director to come in and just take it to the next level. And it was this man, a baker who had never been involved in full-time ministry. Didn't preach, didn't, you know, it, it just it had so many limitations as, as, as the world would think, but he was the right man at the right time with a life and heart yielded to God. And there's a businessman who's been watching that ministry for years, and he's seen the different directions, and he sees this guy come in, this baker, and how God just starts to explode things in that ministry through his leadership. He was so impressed by it, he had that man come to his business, which is a big, profitable business, and take the key management officials and teach them how to lead because of what he saw this baker doing at this small Christian ministry. Recently, this same guy, he had an opportunity, he's been approached and said somebody was inviting him to go to the Baltic states and disciple Muslims that are coming to faith in Christ. 
And he would love to do that. He has the heart for it. But he says, there's no way I can do that unless somebody would step up and write the check for it. And he and his wife pray for two weeks. And then this businessman, out of the blue, calls up and says, I've been wanting to hire you ever since I saw you work in that role. And I've been keeping it, I've been watching you from a distance, praying for you from a distance, and he says, I have a proposal. Would you come work for me for full salary with a car and with an apartment, and I will give, and you will only work for me 20% of the time. And the rest of the time, the rest of the 80%, you can travel and do ministry. What would you think about that? Ah, and he's going, talk about an answered prayer. And he's a simple layman. He's a Nehemiah who stepped into a situation by faith, not because he'd read 21 principles of leadership, but because he was just available to God, letting God use him, and other people are watching, this is the hand of God. There is no explanation. This is not leadership books. This is not studying principles of how to do a, be a better leader. This is the hand of God. And I want that kind of man working for me, even if it's 20% of the time getting a full salary, it's more than worth it. Amazing. I like Nehemiah. I see a man who's humble, who waits on God, who knows how to persevere in prayer without letting his emotions govern everything and dictate everything, who can pray spontaneously in the moment, who has a genuine, heartfelt love and respect for those in authority over him, even when they're part scoundrel, and who's practical. But above all, Trust God. I'll close us in prayer. God, I thank you for these just practical examples that you've given us in Scripture, not of men that we can aspire to be like, but practical examples of how you work in people's lives. And what you did with Nehemiah is what you are able and willing to do in anyone who's available to you. I pray that we would learn to wait on you, to pray heartfelt prayers, and yet to not allow our hearts and our emotions, God, to govern and overrule your spirit, so that we would be people, God, who wait on you, hear you, and are moved at the impulse of your spirit, and not just at the impulse of our own emotions. Thank you, God, for your gracious work in each of our lives and your willingness to use each of us each and every day. In Jesus' name.